Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of a senior's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. Today's episode is a follow-up to the previous episode, which explained hospice care and also addressed the question of when a person with a dementia, such as Alzheimer's disease, might be eligible for hospice care. As I mentioned in the beginning of that episode, I recently published an article about hospice that was in response to a reader's question. And her question was really about the medications, the controlled substances, specifically morphine and lorazepam, brand name Ativan, that were given to her mother and aunt when they were on hospice. And both those women did have dementia. So, In this episode, I want to share with you, uh, first of all, the reader's question, because I think the story that she tells is really important and may resonate with some of you who may have had a similar experience or know someone who had similar concerns. And so first, I want to share the question, and then I'll cover the following things. First, I'm going to address the issue of these controlled substances used in hospice, so specifically how morphine is usually used in hospice care and why we why we use it. I'll also address how lorazepam, brand name Ativan, is used in hospice care. And then we'll talk about how to choose a hospice provider because that was part of the reader's question and what to do if you're concerned about the care that one of your older relatives or really someone of any age is getting while they are on hospice. Let me start now by sharing the question with you. Dear Dr. K, with all the news about opioids and benzodiazepines and their risk of death, I would love to hear your take on the use of these drugs in hospice. We've had two family experiences now, my mom and my aunt, who were given these drugs right away when they went on hospice, without hospice trying anything else first that would be less dangerous. My mom was up and walking one day at her memory care facility, even laughing. The next day, when hospice put her on morphine and Ativan, she was in a coma. She died 13 days later without ever regaining consciousness. When I protested and asked why she wasn't waking up, the hospice nurse said, quote, it's not the drugs, it's the disease, close quote. Parentheses, mom had dementia. The nurses wouldn't let us give her fluids. Quote, you don't want your mother to aspirate, do you? Or feed her. Quote, you don't want your mother to choke, do you? With my aunt, she had also been in the memory care facility and got to the point of needing a two-person assist. Her power of attorney was given the choice of moving my aunt into a nursing home or bringing in hospice. Hospice immediately gave her morphine and Ativan and then backed off the Ativan and gave her morphine every two hours until she died three days later. Now the third sister, also with dementia, has been in hospice for two months and counting. She is lucid most days, eating, drinking, comfortable, all without the opioid-benzo drug combination because of our experience. How can family members identify a hospice that doesn't use this troubling combination of drugs from the start 
without first trying something less dangerous to make a patient quote-unquote comfortable. So that's the question that was sent in by a reader of Better Health While Aging. And I have to say, when I got the question, I, I was sad. I was sad to hear that she had had these difficult experiences with hospice, which is supposed to be a help and a comfort to families, not a source of concern. So I felt badly that it, it sounded like for whatever reason, her family had been left feeling concerned rather than supported by the hospice services. At the same time, I have to say I wasn't surprised by this story. And that's because I know that these medications are often prescribed for hospice patients. I don't know how common it is for their use to result in the situation that she describes. And it's also hard to know what exactly happened. This is a family member's perspective. And if I were to review the charts, uh, I may or may not think that the use of the medications had been appropriate. It's not possible to say to remove whether what the hospice did was appropriate or not. But what we can do is talk about how these medications are supposed to be used. What, you know, what are the conventions and what are the, the best practices, the recommendations for how they are used. And I think for you as family members or possibly as people who one day will be on hospice yourselves, we all will eventually die and many of us uh, may choose or have our families choose to to take advantage of hospice for that last phase of our life. I think it can be a good thing to understand the role of these medications in hospice care so that you can sort of know what to expect and maybe even know what to bring up at the start of services or certainly what to bring up if you're concerned. So it is indeed very common for hospice to use opioid medications, specifically morphine, um, and they especially use morphine because it's inexpensive to manage end-of-life symptoms, and it's also quite common for them to prescribe lorazepam, brand name Ativan, as well. And I'm going to go into a little bit more detail on each of those in a moment, but Overall, the basic reason why these are used in hospice is because many people during those last days, weeks, or months of their life, they suffer from troubling symptoms that these medications can relieve, symptoms such as pain or shortness of breath, anxiety, agitation, nausea, and others. That said, although the use of these medications is really common, it's not always necessary. And ideally, these medications are prescribed and used only as required to manage the symptoms. So some people have a lot of these symptoms and some people may have less. In particular, people with dementia, as I mentioned in the previous episode, to qualify for hospice when the main terminal illness is Alzheimer's disease or related dementia, people have to be at a very advanced late stage of dementia at the point at which usually they cannot walk, they cannot really do anything much for themselves, and they usually don't recognize people, and either they've stopped talking or they just mumble a few things that aren't that aren't very sensible and aren't really truly responses to things that people say to them. Now, at that stage of dementia, people still may have signs that suggest pain or distress, moaning, groaning, or other signs of uh, discomfort. But it is important to always bear in mind that the use of these controlled substances in hospice care is supposed to be a response to the person's symptoms and distress, not just 
sort of prescribed and used as a default. So I can see why the reader was concerned about what she observed with her family. And at a bare minimum, I would say that it's a shame that the hospice personnel perhaps didn't spend more time discussing their proposed care plan with the family, because sometimes when families are concerned, it's actually just that there hasn't been quite enough communication between the clinicians and the family about what are the symptoms and how the person's comfort can best be managed. So I definitely cannot really pass judgment on the situation that the reader described because it's impossible for me to know enough of the rest of the medical details to say whether the use was appropriate or not. But we can talk about how these medications should be used based on research and recommendations from experts. And so let me go into that now. And then in the last part of the episode, we'll address the question of choosing a hospice provider and what to do if you're concerned. So let me start with opioids, how opioid medications such as morphine can help at the end of life. Research that has been done specifically on people with very advanced dementia has found that certain symptoms and difficulties are common, such as one, aspiration, and the reader mentioned this. So aspiration is when you accidentally suck in fluids or sometimes food into your windpipe and your lungs. So normally, your mouth and throat are engineered so that when you swallow, uh, you actually cover up the entry into your windpipe and your lungs to protect it from fluids and other things coming in. And that way, anything that you're trying to uh, eat or drink should go down into the other tube in your throat, which is the esophagus, the one that leads down to the stomach. However, when people, uh, first of all, advanced Alzheimer's in of itself tends to cause difficulties with swallowing just because the neurons in the brain that control and coordinate everything in your body are really starting to fall apart. And then even in people who don't have Alzheimer's or dementia, when people become very weak from their terminal illness, they can start to have difficulty swallowing correctly and they can aspirate. So aspiration is actually a common concern or issue for people at the end of life, both people with Alzheimer's and even some people without it. Other kinds of symptoms and difficulties that people are often encountering at the end of life if they have Alzheimer's or another dementia include pneumonia, which can be caused by aspiration or can just come on for other reasons, fevers, shortness of breath, and then pain. And the way we usually determine that a person with advanced dementia has pain, because again, if you're on hospice because of mainly dementia, you'll be at such an advanced stage that the person will have lost the ability to communicate, um, to speak and express themselves verbally to others. So since they can't tell us they're in pain, We basically observe it. We observe it if the person is moaning or grimacing. We observe it if we touch them, especially in certain parts of the body, if they seem to wince or flinch. And so it has been observed that a lot of people uh, with advanced dementia do have pain. So where do opioids fit in with all of this? So many of you probably know that morphine is an effective painkiller. Now, For a variety of reasons, it's not often the best choice for the treatment of pain for the longer term. 
Uh, right now in the United States, there's a lot of concern about overuse of painkillers and the way people can become addicted and start to abuse them and then switch to an even more dangerous opioid such as heroin. So there are uh, increasingly reasons to be careful with these medications. At the same time, when it comes to people on hospice, we're not so concerned about addiction or abuse, although I do sometimes worry that someone else in the household might possibly take the drug to use or sell. And morphine does work for pain, especially in the short term. So this is a drug that is currently often used to treat pain at the end of life. And I expect it's going to continue to be a mainstay of hospice care, even as we are trying to restrict the use of opioids for the treatment of pain for healthcare in general. Now, Something that people may not know is that not only does morphine help with pain at the end of life, but it actually also helps with shortness of breath. This is counterintuitive to people because people may have heard that if you take too much morphine, you can stop breathing. This is actually the way that people usually die of overdoses, whether it's an overdose of a painkiller or an overdose of heroin, which is a synthetic opioid. And it's true that in high doses, morphine and other opiates, they lower what's called your respiratory drive, that sort of uh, system within you that prompts you to take a breath regularly. And people usually breathe at somewhere between, say, 14 and 20 breaths per minute. So if opioids reduce your respiration, are they also good for shortness of breath? Well, it turns out that actually they sort of act on certain receptors within the lungs and possibly within the brain. And they do relieve that feeling, that feeling of breathlessness, which is a really distressing symptom for many people at the end of life. And the way we know that they are relieving the breathlessness and not just slowing people's breathing down is that people, um, perhaps not people with advanced dementia, because they can't necessarily tell us that they are feeling better, but in other people who don't have dementia and can report their symptoms, they often report that they feel better and they will look more comfortable when they're given some morphine for shortness of breath. And it doesn't have to be a lot. It can be actually a, a fairly small dose. So in short, morphine is an effective way to manage two very common symptoms at the end of life, which are pain and shortness of breath. That said, what about the issue of can you overdose someone with morphine when they're on hospice and cause them to die prematurely? So on one hand, the answer is yes. If you give somebody too much morphine, you will slow their breathing down to the point that they can die. However, this normally does not happen on hospice. And the reason for this is that usually the amount that it takes to help the person uh, feel significantly better from their pain or shortness of breath is not enough to actually lower their breathing rate to the point at which uh, you might provoke dying. And one of the ways you can kind of tell is that often we treat people with morphine and they feel better and they might even fall asleep, which sometimes worries family members. But they'll be asleep because they're actually more comfortable, but they should still be breathing at least 10 breaths per minute. So again, it's important here that even though on hospice, we, we know people are going to die, and the role of the clinician is, to, is not to try to postpone that. Uh, when a medication such as morphine is prescribed and used, it is supposed to be used solely for the purpose of relieving the symptom and in the, the amount needed to provide some relief from the symptom. So 
hospices are not supposed to rush um, things along with additional morphine. This shouldn't happen with somebody uh, with advanced dementia, but with some other patients, if they ask for things to be rushed along, that's not considered ethical for the hospice clinicians to agree to. Instead, that would be a sign of kind of um, psychological distress. And we should try to, you know, one, address the uncomfortable symptoms, first of all, because maybe the symptoms are just too uncomfortable and excruciating. And then two, if the person is still asking for a hastened death, you know, the answer is to, to have more conversation, you know, and more, more counseling and maybe even call in a specialist if necessary. So again, in most cases, it should be possible to use an opioid such as morphine in a way that is careful and ethical and effective in treating pain and shortness of breath without hastening the person's death. Now, will they be sleepy from the opioid? Possibly. I mean, these drugs do feel um, sedating to many people, especially if they're not used to taking them. But also people often um, sleep on hospice because they're tired, they're sick. Often if you relieve their pain or shortness of breath, they can finally relax. If you want to learn more about opioids at the end of life, in the show notes, I'll post a link to a nice page from the Canadian Virtual Hospice that explains these issues on using morphine and explains why correct use should not speed up death. Now, what about benzodiazepines, medications such as lorazepam, again, brand name Ativan, how are they used in end-of-life care? So the situation with benzodiazepines is interesting because it's a little bit different, actually, from opioids such as morphine. So on one hand, benzodiazepines, especially lorazepam, are very commonly prescribed in hospice. And usually the order says to administer a certain dose at a certain interval as needed for anxiety or agitation. And benzodiazepines can also be prescribed to treat symptoms such as nausea, insomnia, or seizures. So they are often prescribed. The reason why it's a little bit different from opioids is that actually if one digs into the actual research and scientific evidence for their use in treating end-of-life symptoms, there's actually not a lot of good evidence to support their use. And a very interesting study was published in 2016 in which the authors first surveyed hospice clinicians regarding their use of benzodiazepines and their attitudes towards benzodiazepines, what they thought it was helpful for. And then the authors conducted this extensive review of the existing clinical research on benzodiazepines in palliative care. And what they found was that there have not really been good studies or evidence done that shows that benzodiazepines are beneficial at the end of life, especially when it comes to people who are quite elderly or have dementia. But hospice clinicians still often use benzodiazepines. And so whereas for morphine, there actually is a pretty solid scientific foundation supporting the fact that they are effective in relieving pain and shortness of breath. Uh, When it comes to benzodiazepines, there's not nearly as good of a scientific foundation. And so it seems that a large part of our use of benzodiazepines is actually a sort of habit in medicine and in palliative care. So is this good for people on hospice, especially if they're older or have dementia? And In that scholarly paper, the authors 
sort of questioned the practice, and they noticed that in other studies that are not specific to end of life, we've generally found that giving older people benzodiazepines often causes increased confusion and doesn't really improve things that much. So in short, benzodiazepines are commonly prescribed and used in hospice, but it's not clear that their use is strictly necessary or even the best choice for managing certain symptoms. I myself have practiced on hospice units in the past, and I would say that for me, I have found that some patients appreciate benzodiazepines, but those are the ones on hospice who don't have dementia. I don't know that I would use it so much in someone who has dementia, but for people who are cognitively intact and are having a lot of anxiety or worry, benzodiazepines, certainly in the short term, often help people relax and help people sleep. So we shouldn't say that they're wrong for hospice clinicians to be using overall, but it is true that if one takes a really good look at the practice, it's not clear that it's helpful for older people who have dementia, especially advanced dementia. And in general, I would say that it's always a good idea to start by treating for pain first, and also considering the possibility of other uncomfortable symptoms such as constipation, which is a known side effect of pain medication. And then if you think you've actually provided adequate medication for pain and the person is still restless and agitated, then that would be the moment to consider an additional medication. And when it comes to dementia, if you're concerned about delirium or agitation, it's generally better to try a low dose of an antipsychotic, such as Haldol or Risperidone, than it is to try a benzodiazepine. So to recap the use of these controlled substances in hospice care, both morphine and lorazepam are often prescribed to people on hospice to uh, usually to be used as needed although in the case of morphine or pain medication, they might be prescribed for around-the-clock use, especially if we know the person has a permanent painful condition, such as a tumor in a painful spot, you know, something that we expect will be causing pain 24 hours a day. And just so you know, when we give people morphine by mouth, so either as tablets or as a liquid for pain, the effect only lasts about four hours. So you can't give it to people once a day and expect them to have pain relief the whole day. You actually would have to be giving it more like six times a day. As for lorazepam, the scientific foundation for using it on hospice for people with dementia is much weaker than the basis for using morphine. And then in either case, the goal in using these medications, which are sedating and can in higher quantities cause people to stop breathing, the goal is to use just enough to help relieve the symptom and make the symptom bearable. It should never be to uh, snow the person or excessively sedate them or certainly not to hasten death. So now, Let me address the question of how to choose a hospice provider, and then we'll go into what you can do if you have any concerns about hospice care. In terms of choosing a hospice provider, hospice is ultimately like all medical care. It's best provided by clinicians who, first of all, have been properly trained and who provide care that is grounded in the latest best practices, the latest methods that are recommended by experts and others who are deeply knowledgeable about the subject and have studied what's the best way 
to provide care best meaning it results in sort of the best outcomes for most people. So ideally, clinicians should should be well-trained and know the best practices, but they should also be able to tailor a care plan to a patient's uh, symptoms, a patient's particular needs. Everybody is an individual, and so it's extremely important to not just go and sort of fire off the cookbook recipe, but you know, assess the dying person, the family, and kind of customize the plan accordingly. And then, especially when it comes to hospice, you know, which is often a very emotionally charged situation for the family and for the dying person, if they're aware of a situation, it's really important for clinicians to be able to skillfully communicate with patients and family members. Death and dying do become quite familiar to hospice clinicians, but it's usually quite frightening and fraught for the watching family. So in a good hospice agency, the clinicians should be able to help families understand why a certain approach may be a good way to help the patient feel better and live the best life possible during whatever time is left. So to just come back to the situation that the reader described in her question and in her story, one of the things that struck me was her mentioning that the hospice nurses didn't let the family give their dying mother fluids or food. Was this medically right? You know, that I can't say from a distance, but it's true that sometimes family thinks the person needs to be eating or drinking, and we as professionals actually think, well, that's probably not going to improve their comfort because that lack of food and water is probably not making them uncomfortable. In fact, sometimes feeding them too much can cause some more choking or distress. But I find that you don't just want to tell families, no, don't do that. You first of all want to ask, what are you hoping to achieve? And maybe set some expectations, correct some expectations with your additional medical knowledge. And then the other thing is that families of dying people often are anxious to feel that they're doing something, that they're showing love. They may worry if the person's not eating or drinking, that they're uncomfortable, that they're being starved, that they're being deprived. So this is a sort of situation where communication can be very important. And where as hospice clinicians, we want to provide reassurance. We want to help families find other ways to provide love and attention both for their own sake and for the sake of the dying person. So how does one find an excellent hospice team like this? So in a perfect world, all hospice teams would be ideal. The reality is that some are better than others. First of all, some individual clinicians are better than others. And then some agencies are probably better run than others. To find a good one, here are some things that I would recommend. First, do some research on hospice agencies that serve your area. There's actually a nice worksheet that I'll share in the show notes from the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. They have a little worksheet where you can, one, make sure that the agencies are credentialed and haven't had complaints, and also to get some additional important questions answered. Another thing you can do is ask friends and family members in your area about their experiences with local hospice agencies. If another family felt that the agency was responsive and caring, that would generally be a good sign. Another thing to do is to ask your usual doctors for a recommendation. This can be especially useful if the primary care doctor is a sort of attentive, caring, and involved type of clinician. Now, I will say that there are a number of primary care doctors who 
uh, who will refer patients to hospice, but then not really be involved. And so they may not actually ever find out how that hospice worked out for a particular family. So just because a doctor refers a lot of patients to a hospice or any other medical provider doesn't necessarily mean that they have a good sense of whether the experience is good. Doctors sometimes just get in their habits of referring to whoever is convenient to refer to or whoever their nurse might be used to referring to. So if your doctor makes a recommendation, you might want to ask, have you heard good things about the services from the patients who've used it or you know, otherwise try to understand what the recommendation is based on. The last point I'll make in terms of choosing a hospice is I do think it can be useful to consider whether the hospice agency is nonprofit versus for-profit. Just a brief bit of history. When hospice uh, first got started in the United States back in the, it was really mostly in the 70s, it was done by small agencies who were mainly nonprofit and who were extremely mission-driven. But because hospice became a Medicare benefits, more agencies went into it, including many for-profit ones who were more focused on the business aspect and on making a profit, understandably. And so there has been some evidence accumulated over the years that some for-profit hospices may be run with more emphasis on the bottom line and that this may not benefit their enrollees or the Medicare program. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that they're more likely to snow your older relative inappropriately with uh, sedating controlled substances, but an agency that's kind of moving along may have uh, a higher patient load, may have clinicians that are busier because they're seeing more patients and may have less time to communicate with families. They may invest a little less in training for their employees and so forth. Overall, I do usually encourage families to look into all available hospice agencies in their area, including for-profit ones, but I think it's good to be aware of the concerns that have been raised regarding for-profit hospice agencies. Now, once you've chosen an agency, how can you ensure that your dying relative gets the right care, and what should you do if you're concerned? It is often a very tiring and stressful time when an older person gets enrolled in hospice. And so for family members, it can be hard to muster the energy to be really proactive. That said, if you can find the time and energy to do so, I think it is good to be proactive right when the hospice care begins. In particular, I recommend asking to see which medications are being ordered and under what circumstances they'll be given. I also recommend that you bring up any concerns you might have regarding the use of opioids or benzodiazepines. If you're worried about your older parent being too sedated or too drowsy, then it's important to say that right at the beginning. Just you know, let them know that, uh, that you do want their symptoms treated, but that you really want to make sure that they use the smallest amount of medication necessary. And in general, taking a little moment to think about your family's goals and priorities using the use of medication and taking some time to discuss that with the hospice clinicians can be really important. And you might even consider bringing up the fact that you heard that there's not really a good scientific evidence base for using benzodiazepines in the end of life for people with advanced dementia. And so you could ask that they be minimized or ask, well, can we see if we can keep my mom comfortable 
to begin with by using opioids as needed for pain and shortness of breath and other medications to manage difficult symptoms. And you can see how that goes. And then later reassess the need for benzodiazepines. Because one thing that's important to realize is that actually many hospice agencies use a pre-made template to prescribe medications. And such templates will often include orders to use both morphine as needed and lorazepam as needed. So this usually gives the nurses or whoever is administering the medication quite a lot of leeway on using these controlled substances. So uh, that's why it's good to speak up at the beginning and make sure that whatever has been ordered, that you're aware of it and have had a chance to express any concerns or preferences at the beginning. And if you want to see what one of these hospice order templates looks like, I'll put a link in the show notes. Now, let's say the hospice care starts and you find yourself concerned. What can you do? So here are a few things that I would recommend. First and foremost, bring up your concerns to the nurse. You want to give that clinician a chance to better communicate with you. Normally, if it's a good clinician, they should actually be interested in your concerns and see it as an opportunity to help you with the experience and to sort of get everybody on the same page. If uh, after talking to the nurse, you're still concerned or feel that the nurse wasn't, or whichever clinician you spoke to wasn't very responsive, then a next step might be to ask to speak to the supervising physician. So hospice agencies do have a medical director. So that's a physician who may or may not see all the patients in person, but is supposed to be providing oversight and supervision to the team. So this person might be able to help get the care back on track or resolve whatever concerns or difference of opinion that there is about what the dying person's symptoms are and uh, the role of certain medications in alleviating those symptoms. You can also try speaking to the dying person's usual doctor, who sometimes remains involved, actually. Sometimes the referring physician can remain the supervising physician for the hospice clinicians. But even if they're not, they may be able to contact the hospice agency and relay the concerns or otherwise encourage a little bit more attention to the concerns that you've brought up. Another thing to do which I would recommend is to share your concerns in writing with the hospice agency. Concerns in writing can have a really powerful effect. They often go into some form of permanent record. They can be taken more seriously by the top management of any kind of healthcare agency. And it's also, in a way for you, proof that you expressed your concern and laid it out. So this is always something you want to consider. If despite all your best efforts, you're still concerned about the agency, then another thing to do is to consider a switch to a different hospice provider. So in the United States, according to Medicare, you do have the right to change your hospice provider once during every benefit period. And usually a benefit period at the beginning is 90 days. At the beginning, when people first start on hospice, they get two 90-day periods. And then after those uh, first six months, the benefit periods are 60 days, so every two months. So those are times when you do have the right to switch at least once. And then last but not least, consider filing a complaint with state or federal authorities. This is probably not going to get you better care for your situation in the moments for your dying relative. However, this can be useful in terms of reporting an agency that may be consistently providing a suboptimal care experience to dying people and their families. 
And so to come back to the reader's question and to share some thoughts on it, I think the story sort of illustrates that despite our best efforts and intentions in healthcare, things often don't feel ideal to patients and family members. And sometimes that's a sort of perception communication problem uh, where actually what the clinicians are doing is reasonable and in line with best practices and there just hasn't been quite enough communication with the patient and family for everybody to come to an agreement or to understand each other. But in other cases, what's being done to help people, whether it's on hospice or for other aspects of healthcare, is uh, is either wrong or just not ideal. So it's just not uncommon for there to be flawed execution in healthcare despite our best intentions. And I do believe that most clinicians are well-intentioned and want to help. Ideally, morphine and lorazepam will be carefully used in just the minimum quantity necessary to manage uh, symptoms for an older person who is dying, whether they have Alzheimer's or otherwise. And it's possible that unless a family is pretty attentive and proactive, that an older person might get a little bit more than is necessary. I don't think it's very common for that to result in a hastened death, but it might make them sleepier or less responsive than they otherwise would be. And if that's what the dying person wanted for themselves at the end of their life, then maybe that's not so bad. But often, perhaps the dying person would have preferred to be as awake as possible to talk with family, or perhaps that's what the family, if they were then making medical decisions on behalf of an older person with advanced dementia, perhaps that's what they wanted. And it's important for clinicians to be open to that and to try to respect that. In a perfect world, the family member of somebody dying, you wouldn't have to be there double-checking what people are doing because it's already a lot of stress, a lot of, a lot of effort, emotionally very taxing to be involved with a family member at the end of their life. And it's not fair that family caregivers might feel like they have to double check what's going on. But things in healthcare are still imperfect. So yes, if you do have the time and energy to learn a little bit ahead of time, to be proactive, to ask questions at the beginning and keep an eye on what's going on, and then to speak up if you have concerns, I would encourage you to do so. And in closing, I'm going to again say that despite the problems that arise, the problems that I've heard people complain about, I still believe that overall hospice is a wonderful service that usually provides a lot of benefits to people who are dying and their families. So I hope uh, hearing about some problematic situations won't discourage you from hospice overall. Just be aware, be mindful, keep an eye on what's going on ask around when you're selecting a hospice and try to find one that people say good things about. And then if you have concerns about the care, uh, speak up and consider a switch. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in the episode, you can post it on the show notes page for this episode. I'll also be posting some of the links to some of the resources that we mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes. 
and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.